It's 6 o'clock in the evening, and this is New York City. But of course, we're in internet radio stations. We broadcast everywhere. And I'm pleased to say, my name is Mark Riley. This is the Mark Riley Program. And I'm glad to be here. Man, I have been energized to do this hour since I first opened my eyes. And you don't know what time, you don't want to know what time I wake up in the morning. I have been looking forward to this. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to talk about. Uh, And one of them actually happened earlier today. That is the resignation. Hey, Jason, Jason Taubenfeld is at the controls. Uh, Did she fall on the sword or did somebody run her through? (laughs) That's the question. Julia Pearson, the director of the Secret Service, is the director of the Secret Service. No more. Not after a guy gets as far as the East Room in the White House and President Obama has a guy taking pictures of him and he's strapped in Atlanta in an elevator, no less. That, that, you, you can't, you can't tolerate that. But we're going to get into that because uh, this kind of stuff creates the most bizarre political theater that you're going to see anywhere. But, Jason, I think I ought to start with ISIS, mainly because, you know, the president over the weekend caused quite a stir when he said, well, you know, kind of this whole ISIS thing kind of caught us by surprise. We didn't know that they were as strong as they were. They were, you know, they, they, they. Our intelligence people, and that's where he, you know, kind of, kind of made people angry. Our intelligence people, actually, he didn't say they dropped the ball, but he said they were uh, caught unaware, caught off guard. Now, the intelligence community does not like to have its competence questioned, even by the president of the United States. Now, the president said afterward he wasn't trying to trying to dog out their competence, but here is where we are, as far as ISIS is concerned. Jason, did you know they're like five miles from Baghdad in Iraq? Five miles! Okay. Uh, Let's see. That's the equivalent of taking the subway from 125th Street to downtown Brooklyn, maybe a little further out. Five miles! And they've captured several towns and cities in Syria. Which, by the way, Syria creates a, a huge problem for the U.S., mainly because we have been promoting the myth of responsible, moderate opposition to Bashar al-Assad. And let me be perfectly frank and, you know, honest about this. There's not much Syrian opposition that is moderate. In point of fact, ISIS wants to topple Bashar al-Assad as well. So that leaves the United States in a very strange position. Do we find common cause with Assad, who we've accused of gassing his own people? We thought about bombing him and all the rest of this. Is that how we finally settle the bill as far as ISIS is concerned? And by the way, this incremental territory taking that they're involved with says that no matter what we're being told, about the success of the airstrikes, it's not enough. I mean, I, I hate to be honest about this. I mean, I, I hate to be brutally frank about this. Uh, I, I feel I'm being honest from my own perspective here. No shot. No shot. We are not going to beat ISIS through the air. Sorry, did, Jason, did people believe that? They did. Well, okay, I'm sorry to bust your bubble. Ain't going to happen. All right. Uh, boots on the ground probably even shouldn't happen, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I, I'm a softy, peacenik, commie, socialist, whatever, who believes, you know, John Lennon had it right when he said, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Now, when it comes to folks who behead people, you really test your peace credentials. Seriously test your peace credentials. Because when it comes to beheadings and those sorts of things, you know, no matter, almost no matter who it is, and, and rest assured, you know, they, they, they did it with Foley, they did it with a couple of other people who were from European or from uh, countries or from the United States. They do it regularly in Iraq and in Syria. 
We just don't see it on video because there's no shock effect for us. You know, if they, they behead an Iraqi, they just beheading an Iraqi. I don't even know if they have a logical reason for behead. But believe me, they are showing this stuff to Iraqis. The Iraqis know exactly what they're doing. And whether you want to make the argument that Obama and his intelligence apparatus were asleep at the wheel and let ISIS get too far, what did people think he should have done? What, send troops? We just got the troops the heck out of there. I still maintain, and and by the way, hey, Jason, did you hear that they busted a couple of hackers the other day? Yeah, they busted some hackers who were actually either on video or audio tape talking about the hacking. You know, I say offer them amnesty and set them on the people that fund ISIS. And not just the pipeline that funds ISIS, but the core businesses of the people who fund ISIS. And if there are friends, supposedly, and I would say... Funding a bunch of beheading, happy barbarians is not supposed to be something friendly toward us. Let them hack. Hack them. Put viruses in there. Make it difficult for them to conduct their core businesses. It's not going to solve everything. But Boots on the Ground hasn't solved everything. And airstrikes haven't solved everything. So why not give this a shot? Maybe they already are. You know, it's possible. They're supposed to be, like, really smart people. They're a lot smarter than me. So why not? Give it a shot. Give these kids amnesty. You can pay them a little. Let them have at ISIS and ISIS's friends and supporters. Okay, now, we got a really great guest coming up, by the way, at about 6.15. He's going to talk about the vote and how the deuce it is that in Scotland, when they voted on independence, 85% of the eligible electorate voted. And last year, in the mayoral elections here in New York, 24% voted. Ferguson, Missouri, 16% voted. So how come, what, what do the Scots know? And the Venezuelans, by the way, who had comparable turnouts in their last presidential, what do they know that we don't? And, and uh, this is going to be fun. Our guest is Professor Costas Panagopoulos from Fordham University and Yale University. Real smart guy. And he's got a real controversial way to increase voter turnout. We'll get to that. 888-874-4888 is our number. 888-874-4888. Now, with regard to Julia Pearson. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. I like that, Jason. That's real good. Uh, Julia Pearson. And by the way, this is not really about Julia Pearson. I've said this before on other radio stations. When something like this happens, you notice how quickly they can't pass anything in Congress. But they can damn sure get a committee together to conduct a hearing and rake some poor woman over the coals. Now, I shouldn't say poor woman. She ain't broke. She got she got done and dusted at the Secret Service. She's not going to be broke. I just wonder, you know, she had a meeting this morning with Jay Johnson, the guy who runs Homeland Security, the secretary of Homeland Security. Jason, I wonder how that meeting went. Did Jay Johnson say to her, look, (laughs) this ain't going to work out for you. It's about time you can either resign or be fired or. Did she walk in the door and say, here's my resignation, hoping he didn't accept it and then reacting stoically when he did? I opt for option A. He told her, I, I woke up this morning thinking, you know, she ain't got till the end of the week. I didn't think they'd get rid of her today, but I didn't think she'd have till the end of the week. But what went on yesterday, and it's still going on in the 24-hour cable news cycles, is political theater by Democrats and Republicans. It gives them a chance to, you know, make the home folk think that they're actually doing something. Raise the minimum wage? Oh, hell no. 
<laughs> they can't do that. They leave that to Bill de Blasio. We'll talk about that, too. But you can yell at the woman that's in charge of, of, of the Secret Service, who, by the way, got the gig because has everybody forgotten about all that scandal down in Colombia with the Secret Service people patronizing hookers and the rest of that stuff? Now, if you want to connect the dots and put all this together, you could very easily come to the conclusion the Secret Service is a bunch of yahoos. Ain't nothing like old Clint Eastwood. What was that movie he 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 played a Secret Service guy? You know, a guy's willing, to, yeah, in the line of fire, willing to take a bullet for the president. Not these guys. Oh no, no, they're not taking a bullet for nobody. Now, I know that there's some people, and, and you know, because I don't do a radio show every day, I haven't gotten any calls from any of them. There are people who believe that the Secret Service is deliberately slack on account of this is Barack Obama. They won't necessarily say it's racial or whatever, but their thing is, you know, George W. Bush didn't have to worry about this kind of crap. Although I think the prostitution thing may have happened on his watch, but bottom line, breaches like having an armed contractor who has been twice convicted of assault in an elevator with the president of the United States with a gun taking pictures. I could see how some people might say to themselves, you know, this don't sound right. <laughs> OK, this sounds a little off. Or an intruder. Now, I've been down to the White House. I've toured the White House. I've sat in, in the East Room. You know, I, I've been through the White House a couple of times, a couple of times with my wife and daughter. They're like real secure, staff-wise, when you go in. You don't get lost in the White House, at least not when you're doing a tour. You don't walk up a flight and say, somebody comes, oh, no, 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 excuse me, sir, ma'am. That area is off limits. And, you know, walking around the perimeter, you got all kinds of hard-looking guys with crew cuts. They take their hats off because it gets hot down in D.C. during the summertime, you know. Uh, you know, they, they look like they're like real purposeful and they're not playing. Jason, who was that woman that was in her car and they ended up shooting her full of holes around the White House someplace because she didn't stop her car? <laughs> you know, these things happen. But this guy, Gonzalez, Omar Gonzalez. He just like, you know, rocked it. Said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got as far as the green room. He ran through the East Room before he was tired and apparently overpowered somebody on the way. How'd that happen? How does that happen? And, of course, you know, everybody, in addition to the political theater of all the hearings and hand-wringing that goes on, Daryl Issa? Does somebody seriously want to tell me Daryl Issa cares one way or the other about Barack Obama's safety? <laughs> You would have thought so the way he was trying to grill this poor woman, Julia Pearson. But again, political security theater. That's what it is. I send a lot of the rest of those clowns. They don't. I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. OK, maybe he, all of these people really do. I know Elijah Cummings does. And I'm not just saying that because he's black and I'm black. Elijah Cummings, congressman from Maryland. I think he does care about Barack Obama's safety and security. But the rest of this is just a show for the home folks. You know, now, I'll grant you, Julia Pearson did not acquit herself all that well at that hearing, at least the parts of it that I saw. And, and sometimes, you know, the 24-hour news cycle kind of clips out the worst of a bureaucrat. And believe me, Julia Pearson was a broiled bureaucrat yesterday. I mean, that was you could see it coming that she was going to have to go. I, I just thought it would be by the end of the week. Not this fast. But is this a mindset issue? Is this an issue where you got to go through the Secret Service and say, to yo, maybe you ought to be selling insurance instead of protecting the president of the United States? Because it doesn't look like you're up for the job doesn't look like you're capable of doing the job. 
And I'm not talking about the guy, that, uh, the person that got overpowered. I'm just saying. It didn't seem, at least to me, like all hands were on deck. And for a guy to get on an elevator in Atlanta with a gun, with the president, what, does he have to dress up like a crip? <laughs> Is that what he has to do? In order to get anybody's attention, for God's sake? And then they, he was fired on the spot. Well, yeah. Yeah, he was fired on the spot. He should have been fired on the spot. So, too, should have been whoever was in charge of that detail, that Secret Service detail down there. You don't let some guy. And, and they didn't do anything until he started taking pictures and acting unprofessional. What does acting unprofessionally mean? He was a contractor, for God's sake. Anyway, enough bloviating on my part. Now we're going to talk about the vote. The vote is something that endlessly fascinates me because I see over the years, uh, most people, and I've asked people this question many, many times. Most people do not know the mayoral election in New York City that had the highest single voter turnout. Y'all know what it was? Well, we have a guest. I don't know whether he knows what it was, but he knows about the vote. He is an associate professor of political science and director of the Center for Electoral Politics and the Master's Program in Elections and Campaign Management at Fordham University. He's also a research fellow at the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. A pleasure to welcome to our microphones Professor Costas Panagopoulos. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Do you know the year of the biggest mayoral turnout in New York City history? Well, I'm not sure I'll get it exactly right, but it can't be very high. I certainly uh, might be able to guess uh, the percentage uh, uh, turnout, but uh, not sure when that would be. 1950. All right. 1950, and 2.692 million people voted. By contrast, in 2013, about a million voted. Right, or about 24% 24%. of the eligible electorate. Yeah, and and New York was a slightly smaller place in 1950 than it is now. Mm -hmm. Very interesting numbers. But uh, let me ask you, first of all, Professor, you have a referendum in Scotland about independence. 85% of the people turn out to vote. The last Venezuelan presidential election, similar numbers. What's wrong with us here? Well, I think, uh, you know, the stakes were, were quite high in places like Scotland and other uh, places that have uh, these high salience elections. And uh, we see higher uh, rates of voter turnout in the United States when the stakes are high or when there are really crucial elections like presidential elections, for example. But voter turnout tends to dip in lower salience elections that voters perceive the stakes to be less high in. So it's not uncommon, for example, in midterm elections like the ones we have coming up in November, uh, that uh, uh, only a minority of voters actually participate in, maybe about 35 to 40 percent of the eligible electorate will participate in November, which is uh, markedly less than the 60 percent or so that will participate in presidential elections over the past few cycles. Now, Professor, uh, th- does that mean that there's a segment of the population that just says, ah, they're all politicians, ah, they're all crooks, ah, they're all stinking, there's no reason for me to bother going to vote for them? Well, that is, uh, that is partly it. Uh, people perceive uh, their vote to make uh, very little difference, given uh, how many other votes are cast, and they reason that uh, they shouldn't incur the costs associated with voting because uh, whatever benefits they accrue will not depend on their uh, individual uh, participation. So they decide they're going to free ride on the, um, on the efforts of others. Uh, this is not uncommon in, in uh, cases of collective action uh, that include voting. But in addition to that, one thing that we know um, gets people to the polls, besides uh, close elections and high stakes and competitive races, uh, is mobilization. Uh, people vote because they're asked to vote, because their friends or neighbors or co-partisans uh, or teachers or family members uh, simply ask them to go out and perform this civic duty. And that seems to stimulate uh, higher levels of voter turnout. Professor, we've seen a number of very contentious court battles over things like early voting. Uh, I think it was out in Ohio. Uh, There was a recent ruling that that cut back on early voting. There are other states that have tried Mm -hmm. to do so. We've seen what some characterize as voter suppression in other places, Texas, where you have, you know, uh, what are considered very stringent rules about uh, your eligibility to vote. 
Do you think any of this stuff has an impact on turnout? Well, of course it has an impact on turnout because a lot of the um, so-called convenience voting measures like early voting, same-day registration, um, uh, online voter registration, all of these things are designed to make it easier for people to vote. And when you make it easier for people to vote, uh, the costs of voting are lower and, and greater numbers of people will participate. So there's at the very least the hope, and there is some evidence to suggest that these reforms do have some positive uh, impact on turnout. There's also evidence to suggest that uh, efforts at voter suppression um, depress voter turnout. And so I think we have to be very mindful as a society uh, to monitor the kinds of things that will elevate turnout, to really study them and understand them and understand why people decide to participate in elections, and also to be very um, conscious of, of efforts that um, either deliberately or just uh, because of unintended consequences, lower voter turnout rates. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the electoral process is very complicated in this country. It differs pretty dramatically and, and widely from place to place. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things like what kinds of machinery is adopted to, to um, you know, collect uh, votes, in other words, uh, equipment and all of those things? How, what are people's experiences with it, and how might that affect whether or not they participate in subsequent election cycles? All of these things, uh, certainly at the margins, can have important uh, effects. And that's why there are uh, researchers who are constantly studying the impact of these uh, policy changes and uh, aspects related to to uh, electoral participation, and it's uh, important to, to continue to do that. Our guest is Professor Costas Panagopoulos. He is from Fordham University. He's a research fellow at the Institution for Social, Institution, yes, for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University as well. Professor, uh, there have been a couple of years here recently where voters have been asked, for example, in Jersey, to turn out like three, four times during an election cycle. Uh, when, when uh, Governor Christie, uh, you know, kind of uh, set a date for the Senate election. I, the, I remember going to the polls like four times. And I, I'm wondering whether that sort of thing does have an impact on turnout. And, and should it be allowed to happen if it does? Well, the United States has uh, more elections than uh, most other democracies, maybe even every other democracy in the world. Um, we ask people to go to the polls more frequently than in most uh, other places. And so uh, the sense of voter fatigue is very real in the United States. Of course, we're also electing half a million offices across the country uh, every so often. And so uh, our elections are not held on the same day. They're not even held concurrently. And so uh, it's entirely possible that people are asked to go vote uh, multiple times, uh, even within a single year. And, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's difficult because people have other things to do. And so they'll be selective in uh, the kinds of elections that they will participate in. Uh, I think that you know, uh, there's no real solution to that um, because, uh, you know, we sometimes uh, don't have the luxury of scaling back on the number of elections uh, that we are uh, required to have in cases of special elections and primary elections and general elections. And so um, we've got to try to balance uh, what we ask of citizens with what the needs of our democratic system are. Professor, what would be wrong with the idea? And I want to get to an idea that you have about how to increase turnout. Might be a pretty controversial one, actually. But let me, before we get to yours, let me ask you, and this is something that's perplexed me for a very long time. Many other countries have voting on weekends as opposed to Tuesdays or whenever we usually do it. Usually it's a Tuesday. Why won't, a, uh, why won't the country allow weekend voting? Well, there have been proposals uh, in Congress and in states across the country to uh, change uh, voting to to uh, allow it to be done on the weekend or to make uh, election day a national holiday uh, or to extend voting over multiple days rather than just on a single day and all kinds of other um, 
policy proposals, as I mentioned a moment ago, the so-called convenience uh, voting reforms uh, that allow for greater participation. We've already adopted some of these measures, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, the workplace uh, allowing people to take time uh, while uh, they're still re- being compensated in order to go vote so that they're not penalized, so that uh, they're not losing wages, for example, when they go vote on election day. Um, and so, you know, there are uh, steps in that direction, but for the time being, it has not been the case that we have changed uh, the date of voting, at least for federal elections, uh, from what it has been historically. At some point, uh, we may decide to do that if we believe that there's going to be um, a substantial uptick in turnout as a result. Our guest is Professor Costas Panagopoulos. He is from Fordham University and Yale University. And, and i got to ask you, Professor, you have a, a set of ideas, and I think you may have just touched on it tangentially. Uh, is there anything wrong with literally paying people to vote? Well, besides the fact that it's, uh, it's illegal in most states and uh, it's uh, something that uh, is not permissible when there are federal candidates on the ballot, uh, there are some places that believe that uh, whatever you could do to stimulate voting is probably a good thing, and offering people either monetary incentives or some other type of incentive to go to the polls uh, is really just in the service of democracy. Now, I'm not advocating that as a policy proposal, but I have done research on this topic to investigate what the effects of providing um, monetary compensation to people to vote uh, is, and what the results of that research has shown is that if you offer people some uh, small monetary token uh, or an incentive uh, to vote, any, ranging from just a couple dollars to 10 or $25, uh, the nominal incentives, a couple bucks, don't seem to really do the trick and in some cases might be counterproductive. But larger, um, kind of more meaningful incentives in the range of 10 to $25 do seem to raise voter turnout but uh, not by a huge amount. Uh, voter turnout will uh, climb by three to five percentage points or so on average, uh, but it's not going to uh, double or triple or quadruple by offering these incentives. Uh, that said, there are municipalities like uh, Los Angeles, for example, that are uh, actively engaged in debates about whether or not they want to uh, come up with incentives along these lines, like a lottery for voters that was uh, contemplated in Arizona in 2006 that would give people some extra incentives to uh, incur the cost of voting by showing up. Now, you teach at Fordham University, That's and right. it's interesting that there's an assembly race in the Bronx. I'm not sure if Fordham is included in the 86th Assembly District, uh, but right now... Uh, that particular race is being decided by two votes. And the turnout, uh, as is often the case in the Bronx, you can win uh, 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 an elected seat with like 1,500 votes. And I think in this case, it may be even less than that. Uh, Are people just not like paying attention to politics? Is that what's going on here? Well, I'm not so I'm not so sure that they're not paying attention. Uh, what they're what they may not be um, seeing is, uh, you know, any kind of um, value to their own participation. Uh, they they may not un- understand that uh, in close races like these, every vote literally will count. But it's also unusual to have. Um, elections that are that close. Some of them are, but uh, usually they're more lopsided affairs. Um, uh, They're not necessarily competitive across the board, and so uh, voters tune in only uh, in higher salience elections. uh, that's, That's not very uncommon. And so I think that, uh, you know, one thing that's incumbent on politicians and candidates to do is to raise the stakes of an election and raise the salience of an election by telling voters exactly why it's so important for them to vote and hoping that they will listen. Now, in this country, uh, we do not have a system of mandatory voting. One way that some countries have decided to deal with this uh, is by requiring people to vote, by having um, uh, compulsory voting laws that impose some type of sanction or penalty on 
uh, voters who don't vote. So, I was going to ask you about that. Good well, idea. In, you know, in Australia, if you don't vote, you pay a fine, something like $50 or so. And there are even stricter penalties uh, in some other countries that are enforced uh, to varying degrees across these countries. Uh, but here in the United States, we have not believed that that's a very good idea. We uh, understand voting to be uh, a voluntary process, and people have the, the choice of voting. And I'm not so convinced that forcing people to go to the polls who are otherwise not motivated to become very informed um, you know, uh, is, is really uh, a service to democracy. I'm not sure what the point is of sending... Um, people to the polls who aren't going to be making wise choices because they show up but not necessarily casting informed uh, informed decisions and so from the point of view of democracy compulsory voting uh, may may not be a panacea mm -hmm. uh, but it would raise turnout uh, to voter oh, turnout yeah, in countries sure. that that habit would be you know somewhere the you know in the 15 percentage point uh, range a higher turnout in those types of countries but uh, in the United States, we let citizens choose for themselves. Now, you mentioned a couple of times the notion of raising the salience, and, and you said politicians ought to be able to, to, to accomplish that. I'm not always sure they have that intention. But what other factors could raise salience, particularly for local elections? Well, uh, you know, the media could certainly raise uh, the salience of an election and talk to the voters about the stakes in that election and the kinds of uh, implications of the choices that voters will make in those contexts. But um, besides uh, uh, citizens and candidates, I think that one thing that we don't necessarily do a very good job of in the United States through um, you know, in general, and this uh, goes back to our educational system, is inculcating kind of this uh, this this deep-rooted cultural um, belief that emphasizes the importance of participation in voting. Uh, what's interesting about the United States is even though we have voter turnout rates that are on average much lower than many other countries, uh, the rates of political participation for other types of things are much higher on average than in most countries. So really? people will get, they're engaged in other ways. They'll, you know, they'll volunteer or they will participate, um, you know, in civic organizations uh, or contribute to politicians, volunteer on campaigns, much more so than in many other uh, countries in the world, but they just vote less. So it's somewhat paradoxical, but uh, people, uh, you know, you, you sometimes have more people that get involved and you have volunteers and other workers on political campaigns who will devote huge amounts of time to candidates and parties, but they won't show up and vote, which is the most basic thing that they could do. And I think part of the reason is um, that they may not see uh, a value to their individual participation, but also that there may not be this deep-seated commitment to the very simple act of voting and its significance and importance. And that's something that we could probably do a better job of uh, incorporating into uh, early discussions in, um, you know, in, in, in high school, in junior high school, even elementary school, about the importance of voting as an act of civic duty. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my daughter, who's now 17, uh, has gone in the voting booth with me every time I've voted since she was probably about three. Mm -hmm. uh, and as soon as she turns 18, she's going to register and vote. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But, I, you know, I, the other thing I wonder about, Professor, and, and you know because you, you work in a, a university that's in an urban environment, uh, you have people who, like, wake up one morning and suddenly realize that their building's being gentrified, their neighborhood's being gentrified. And Do you think that, that uh, uh, people who are adversely affected by particularly economic trends in New York, in a city like this, do they see the connection between politics and some, you know, a landlord being able to raise their rent double? Well, I think they do see the connection, but it's a matter of uh, at what point do people become frustrated enough to get engaged and use their vote to signal um, their preference about these types of policies. So one of the reasons people may not, not vote, vote is not because they're apathetic or they're otherwise disconnected from the political process, but maybe they're not unhappy with 
what's going on in politics. Uh, maybe uh, they don't see choices that would make things any different. And so they don't get involved because they're generally happy or they don't think that um, you know anything will really change. Um, I think that once people start to get so fed up that they make the connection between uh, their vote and the um, need for change, that they do show up and they do become mobilized and energized, and we do see higher rates of voter turnout. And there's probably no better recent example of that than in the 2008 election, when yeah. um, you know voters were uh, very frustrated and showed up. Uh, you know, more of them showed up than than uh, the previous few decades to participate in that election cycle, and we saw higher voter turnout in that election cycle than we had seen since the 1960s. And one of the reasons for that was because of the, um, uh, well, the enthusiasm around the Obama candidacy, but also high levels of dissatisfaction. Now, it'll be interesting, this, given the current rate of dissatisfaction with Congress and politicians, uh, whether we'll see higher rates of voter turnout in the midterm elections this year. Uh, you might um, believe that there would be higher turnout as a result of, uh, you know, very intense dissatisfaction with Congress. But um, the, the, the fact is we may even see even lower rates of turnout if people decide to disengage. Final quick question, and we really appreciate your time with us this sure. evening. Uh, term limits. Do term limits make any difference in terms of people's outlook or attitude toward politics? Would people be more uh, likely to turn out? I mean, uh, you know, we have term limits here in the city on certain offices. And if you look at, at turnout, the answer would be no. But then other people look at places like, you know, the House and the Senate and say, you know, maybe more people would turn out to vote if incumbents, you know, weren't constantly being re, uh, reelected and we didn't have a permanent political class. Well, I think that, uh, you know, there's uh, very little evidence of a direct link between term limits and, and voter turnout that, I've, uh, that I'm aware of. But uh, you do raise a very interesting point, which is that, um, uh, you know, there are usually lopsided elections in this country in which, you know, if you look at members of Congress, they're elect, re-elected at rates over 90 and sometimes 95 percent on mm -hmm. average in every cycle. And so if you're a member of Congress has a 95 percent chance of getting re-elected, what's the point of uh, showing up to vote? Uh, it's possible that voters reason this way. And one thing that term limits do is um, they mitigate against that by creating uh, more competitive elections, which do heighten voter participation rates, uh, partly because uh, competitive elections uh, are more salient and partly because uh, the candidates themselves are working very hard in competitive races to mobilize their supporters and to get people out to the polls, which, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, is one of the most effective ways of raising voter turnout, which is by mobilizing people directly uh, through political campaigns and political parties and other types of organizations that try to get people to get involved. Professor Casas Panagopoulos, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I hope to call on your expertise again in the future. It'd be my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Casas Panagopoulos, he is an associate professor of political science and director of the Center for Electoral Politics and the Master's Program in Elections and Campaign Management at Fordham University. Also, a research fellow at the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. Now... We took up this issue because one of our listeners actually, I'm not sure if he Facebooked me, emailed me, or whatever, but, uh, and he was from out of town. He wasn't from New York, but he was, like, completely fascinated by the question and issues raised in voter participation and with regard to voter participation. So we do listen, y'all. You got something you want to talk about? Give me a call to start with, 888 874 4888-888-874-4888. Doesn't have to be about voting. It'd be whatever's on your mind. We got a couple of other things that we're going to talk about. Jason, can we play a little music and then we'll come right back and talk some more? Thank you. 
got 20 minutes left to this bad boy, and we're going to make the absolute most of it. Right, Jason? Yeah. Well, 888-874-4888 is our phone number. Whatever is on your mind. Now, we got a couple of interesting progressive kinds. Because, see, I measure progress in by certain specific benchmarks. You know, if there's a, a group of people that are making 8 bucks an hour, and then they're making 12 bucks an hour, to me, that's progress. Now, it's not progress for everybody. The business folks that run this town would just as soon see fewer and fewer people at the bottom end of the scale getting wage increases. What they expect these folks to do, I do not know. But our mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio, Flanked by Secretary of Labor Thomas Perez. I really like him. I, I actually saw him give a speech before he got the labor gig back in the day, at I believe at uh, one of Reverend Jackson's functions. And uh, just a really dynamic guy. He was there, Council Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito, who, by the way, uh, was not upset at all that the mayor decided to issue an executive order instead of going to the council to get this done. Uh, controller Scott, Scott Stringer, not so much. He apparently felt a little blindsided by this. But the mayor signed an executive order that increases wages to at least $13, 13 cents an hour at companies receiving city subsidies of more than a million dollars. That is effective immediately. Now, this would apply to city subsidized products, projects, that is, that are already underway. Like, for example, the Hudson Yards development. Now, you got to understand, Hudson Yards is in its embryonic baby step stages. And most of the construction, overwhelming majority of the construction workers that are working in Hudson Yards are making more than thirteen, thirteen an hour. Trust me. But this goes beyond that. And I find this absolutely fascinating. This would increase the income of about 18,000 New Yorkers. And it would improve quality of life in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, you know, uh, the median income where they signed, where, where, where the mayor signed the executive order, which is in the Mott Haven section of the Bronx, median income is 20 grand. Can't do much. Jason, can you do a lot with 20 grand living in New York City? No. Not unless you're a professional bank robber or something, and the twenty grand is just you know a salary while you go out and rob for a living. Uh, what's interesting about this is that this order is going to cover tenants renting space within subsidized buildings. Now, that means it's going to re uh, reach retail and food workers. And when they tried to do this once before, okay, I think it was up in the Bronx. Uh, the business community screamed bloody murder. No, you can't make us pay our workers that kind of money just because we got a city subsidy, for God's sake. What do you think we are? Welfare queens or something? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's an unkind cut. But this order, and, and, and that to me defines progress. You know, I, I don't have to put a label on I have to call myself a progressive or that is a something a progressive. It is progress. Somebody's making nine bucks an hour and they get a raise effective immediately to thirteen, thirteen an hour, because they had the good fortune to work in a building that's subsidized by the city. Uh, you know, to the tune of a million bucks. I think that's a good thing. People can feed their families at least a little better. And again. That is progress. Congressional Republicans don't even want President Obama to boost the national minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. $10.10 an hour. 40-hour week, a little over 400 bucks. What are you going to do with that kind of money? Now, I'm not saying everybody should be rich. I'm not saying everybody needs to be Bill Gates or Mike Bloomberg or any of the rest of these people. But you would be absolute, I am anyway, I am absolutely stunned at how people simply take for granted that there are going to be workers there to do certain things. Hey, Jason, imagine you walk into a pizzeria and there's nobody to put a slice in for you, <laughs> okay? 
Or imagine you go to a store, you want to look at some shoes or something, and there's no salespeople. Or imagine you want to upgrade your smartphone, and there's nobody there to help you. Imagine for a moment. So I, I think all, all in all, this is a good thing. Now, a couple other things happening. You know, I mentioned tangentially Ferguson, Missouri a little earlier. There was a, a protest the other day, uh, actually Sunday night. Eight people were arrested. And, of course, you know, the police down there are looking for a guy who shot a cop in Ferguson. Cop didn't die, but the guy shot a cop. The police are saying this has nothing to do with the protests over the police shooting of Michael Brown. And it, and it may not. And l- let me say for the record, I am not about shooting cops. Okay? L- let me be very clear about it. I'm not about that. I am about legitimate expressions of anger. That I'm about. And Ferguson has kind of surprised me, to be brutally honest with you. I didn't think they would keep up this fight for that long. But they are. And God love them. They want something done. Now, step two for the people of Ferguson is to increase voter turnout. No reason why. And the Times has been running a series of articles about cities and towns across America that have majority black or Latino populations, but majority white infrastructures. When I say infrastructure, I'm talking about elected officials on boards of education, boards of planning, the sewer authority, those kinds of things. And you don't want to look at everything in starkly racial terms. But you got to ask yourself, how does a, a town or a city with, like Ferguson, which is two-thirds black, how you only got three black cops on your police force? And what would happen if you had 23 black cops on your police force? Would the cops be as casually brutal toward black people as the people of Ferguson have been arguing they are? I say uh, probably not. But you know what? That's on the people of Ferguson. And I, from what I can see, they seem prepared to step up to the plate. Now, this is another one of these stories. I consider this to be progress, and it's personal for me, because at one time in my life, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I worked in the post office. My dad worked in the post office for 40 years which is about as long as I worked in video. You know, I, I think about my, my, my father, rest his soul, worked for 40 years in one profession. I worked for 40 years. Between the two of us, we worked 80 years at the same gig. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. Well, the American Postal Workers Union, of which both me and my father were proud members, actually have been pushing for the last two years, and an arbitrator's ruled that the Postal Service must add at least 9,000 union jobs in the next 90 days. 9,000 union jobs in the next 90 days. These are clerk positions. They'll be offered at small post offices where the USPS reduced hours in 2012, some of which haven't seen union employees for decades. It helps offset the wave of job cuts that is scheduled to claim another 7,000 positions in the USPS next year. Now, you know, if you go on Fox News or one of these places, they will tell you, well, nobody uses the post office anymore. Why do we need it? We don't even need the post office. You know, blah, 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 blah. We need the post office. Let's be clear. All these are FedEx and this one and that one. and UPS, They do not take the place of the post office. And the post office would not be running the massive deficits that it runs were it not for the simple fact that an act of Congress in 2006 forced the, uh, the, the union, actually forced the workers, to pay forward on their pension obligations like years in advance. I'm talking about years in advance. So 
you know, and, and nobody seems to be able to get that repealed or dealt with. Jason, that's not a call, is it? No. Okay. I, I just wanted to make sure. So this is good. Effort. This is a good effort on the part of the American Postal Workers Union. Uh, when the post office cut back those hours two years ago, uh, and, and these small post offices mostly employed non-union labor, uh, it reorganized those shops, took away supervisory duties from many of the remaining employees, and the APWU filed a grievance. And according to its contract, those positions, other than the supervisory ones, had to go to clerks. And an arbitrator ruled in favor. Now, my guess is the USPS is going to try to appeal. You know, they're selling off postal buildings, by the way. You know, they're, they're like selling, selling them like Christmas candy to developers and this one and that one. Oh, yes, we're going to put up a new multi, multi-story condo in the middle of the South Bronx. And the people of the South Bronx won't be able to live in this beautiful multi-story condo. Or if they are, they got to go in the back door. That's a whole other discussion for another day. I, I went off on poor doors once before. Now, here's a story. And Jason, I got to talk about this. You know, Eric Holder, our attorney general, is leaving. And Joe Nocera in the New York Times wrote a very interesting piece entitled The Hole in Holder's Legacy. Now, take a wild guess what that hole might be. Jason, for $64,000 and the Maserati downstairs, what's the hole in Eric Holder's legacy? Yeah, he doesn't know. And most people probably don't. But the minute I read this column, I knew Joe Nocera had a point. Eric Holder presided over a Justice Department that absolutely refused, refused to prosecute anybody for malfeasance that led this country to the brink of ruin in 2008. It's like, well, we have to move on past all this. Now, don't let all the fines that these banks paid and all of it, don't let that fool you. Didn't nobody go to jail over what happened during the financial crisis? And there seems to be, and you know, and I'm no lawyer, okay? Uh, But it seems to me that there was ample evidence that criminal laws may have been violated in these situations. Now, Eric Holder says the Justice Department had, quote, taken aggressive action, nearly doubling the number of mortgage fraud indictments and criminal convictions between 2009 and 2010. The bottom line is, for example, the guilty pleas from Credit Suisse and BNP Paribas. Last month, the AG said he feared prosecuting large financial institutions could hurt the economy. Well, I, do you say that you know prosecuting bank robbers are going to hurt the local economy, or you know prosecuting other folks that 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 are accused or, or may possibly have engaged in criminal? What kind of argument is that? Hurt the economy? What, by locking them up? You save money. <laughs> Give them bologna sandwiches three meals a day for a couple of years. Let them contemplate the wrong that they have done. Those guilty pleas that some of these people took didn't really cause all that much pain. Uh, in fact, in the case of, of BNP Paribas, They secured agreements from state banking regulations. They wouldn't pull the bank's licenses to do business. So that's not too too much pain. The fact of the matter is, for example, mortgage fraud. They went after the small fish, mortgage brokers or whatever. None of the top executives from any of the major firms were indicted. I'm quoting Joe Nocera here. I'm not making this up. Indeed, he says, and, 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 you know, this is true. According to an article in the New York Times magazine in May, only one executive of any kind 
a mid-level executive with Credit Suisse, has gone to prison as a result of his or her actions during the financial crisis. The notion that Eric Holder is the only one, oh, that this guy is the only one who committed a crime in the mortgage-crazed run-up to the financial crisis is, quite simply, implausible. <laughs> hey, Jason, that's a nice word, implausible, ain't it? Uh, other people might characterize it somewhat differently depending on what part of New York City they come from. And, uh, you know, look, he did some good stuff, did Eric Holder. Let me not, you know, I'm not trying to trying to rip him a new one over here. You know, he reduced some prison sentences, opened civil rights investigations against police departments, challenged ID requirements for voters. He also subpoenaed journalists and sometimes went after their sources on the downside. But the one failing of Eric Holder's, the one failing was not. And, and by the way, this isn't just his failing. Even if Eric Holder wanted to go after some of these miscreants, the fact is the president of the United States, which last I checked is Eric Holder's boss, said no. No, we ain't doing it. For the sake of the economy, for the sake of people's trust in the banking system, for the sake of capitalism itself, we're not doing it. And to that, that's, that's a big negative. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe other people think, well, you know, he probably should have, you know, they got money anyway. And I think Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general here, is giving out like $40 million to people who were harmed by some of this mortgage fraud. And that's a good thing. But I think they could have locked people up and gotten the money. They could find people. There's no law. But they chose not to do it. Why? I don't know. Don't ask me. <laughs> I really don't know. But that is the downside of Eric Holder's tenure. Now, I don't know the last time I heard as much horse race style speculation about who's going to be the next attorney general. It's Preet Bharara. Bharara, I'm sorry. It's Loretta Lynch. No, it's Thomas Perez. No, it's this one. Yeah, it's that one. No, it's this one. For the attorney general, it's, it's getting to be almost as bad as who's going to be the Republican nominee for president, including that corpulent gentleman across the river. Uh, so, look, you know, Eric Holder. Al Sharpton said Eric Holder was the greatest attorney general ever. Okay, as far as civil rights was concerned. And, and he did a lot. But that not going after anybody for the financial shenanigans, big minus, very, very big minus. Okay, got a couple of minutes left, and I got to the ridiculous. And I always love it when it's somebody I don't like does something profoundly stupid, and I get to put him into the ridiculous. And this week it's Donald Trump. He apparently went like a fish for a, uh, a, a tweet when he mistakenly shared a picture of British serial killers. <laughs> he uses Twitter all the time. And when Philip Bradley, Bradbury, I'm sorry, whose Twitter handle is at Feckhead, that's F-E-C-K, don't get it twisted, asked Trump to tweet a picture of his deceased parents because they were huge fans, Trump did so. He tweeted the picture of supposedly Philip Bradbury's parents. But it wasn't Bradbury's parents. It was Fred and Rose West, the married couple accused of torturing, raping, and murdering numerous victims inside their home in Gloucester, England. Says Donald Trump, maybe I'll sue. <laughs> so, you know, and it doesn't take much for Donald Trump to get ridiculous, by the way. Uh, just let me say that as well. Let me say thanks to Jason Taubenfeld for his work on this program. I thank each and every one of you for listening. And I thank Gary Knoll, who was here earlier, and we had a really great conversation, for keeping the Progressive Radio Network alive. Jason, are they running those spots? Okay. Uh, listen, y'all, if you got a couple of dollars to spare, go on prn.fm, and you can click on a donate button that's on that website and help support not just this program. You don't have to support me. Support a network that speaks to you. How about that? All right. I'll be back next Wednesday, 6 o'clock. 
I ain't playing. Have yourselves a great week.